recording. All right. Uh, it's it's episode four of season 12 of Mentioned in Dispatches. And, and we've got a motley cast of characters for you tonight. Uh, Rocky's back. Rocky, welcome back. Good to see you. Hello, hello. And uh, and we've, we've got BB Mike back. This is this is like three in a row now, isn't it, Mike? Yep. I feel like I just left and here I am again. Yeah. yeah catching up with co-host duties. I feel like I was just listening to you because like I was editing <laughs> our previous episode earlier today. And first time showing up on on one of our broadcasts here with Mention and Dispatches, but a longtime member of the community. Byron is here. Byron, most of you will know as Jack Nasty Face floating around our forums. Byron, welcome. Appreciate you being here. Please meet you. Please be here. Good to see everyone. Especially because like we're cutting into vacation for you. So <laughs> I am. I am skiing in Fernie, BC right yeah. now. Yeah, so we uh, we definitely appreciate you taking some time away from the. I mean, it's probably dark on the slopes, and you can't actually. It is. It is. Yeah. So so that probably helps. Um. All right. So so here's the deal. Originally, based on a listener's suggestion from last season, we were going to try and talk some about sort of the online variants to different games and and some of the the homemade mods and scenarios and other things that people put up there. The problem was we were we were having a hard time finding folks that that actually did this a bunch to include any of us. I don't think any of us have done this a whole bunch. Um, But I did see a different inspiration floating around BGG that I wanted to pull up and and throw at you guys. And and audience, I have not warned these folks what I'm about to do to them. So so this is going to be... uh, kind of folks sort of grabbing stuff out of thin air and reacting to this. There was a, a thread on BGG that says, you've got $1 million to improve the wargaming hobby. If I had a million dollars. If I had a million dollars. A rich grognardi benefactor has left you his estate estimated at $1 million. The catch is he wanted his fortune to go to the thing he loved, this hobby. <clears throat> this is Andrew Cluck who put this in the, uh, in the BGG forum. You must spend every penny and it could go to, you know, a variety of different things around, you know, expansion edition to the existing war game, brand new war game. Um, so I, I want to expand it beyond just what Andrew Cluck had said. You've got a million bucks to do something cool for the wargaming hobby. What is it you might want to think about trying to do um, to, to sort of make the hobby, not necessarily improve the hobby, but in order to give back to or do something cool for the hobby other than just like send everybody a free game. So, so you know, with that as a starting point and without a whole lot of deep thought into any of it, because this broadcast is two minutes and change old at this point, um, Mike, anything spring to mind just off the, the initial impression there? Yes, we've had this discussion before, so this is easy for me. It's not this exact discussion, but we've talked about something similar in the past with War Game Wishes, I think. If I had that kind of money, I've talked about this before. These war games that, that are out of print that you can't find anymore that are just out there. I would I would create that good old games, you know, for the digital world. I would create that good old games for wargaming so we could get all these out of print games access to them. You, you see a game, you go to the to good old games, war games, and you find that war game and you hit the buy button and it prints out on one of those fancy Blue Panther-esque magical machines and you receive it within two to three weeks. So so you're looking <laughs> at spending that million bucks on on kind of getting the rights to those games as well as whatever technical updates need to happen for production purposes. Yeah, and I'd probably run out of that million dollars pretty quick, huh? <laughs> well, but I, I think what you'd run out of is the uh, the the lawyer's fees in trying to clear up where all the rights were with a lot exactly. of exactly. That. That's what I mean. Exactly. 
because uh, I'd probably get one game out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because because the ownership of of the rights of some of these things gets a little murky at times. You know, did the did the guys sell it to the company that printed it or, you know, were they on staff and therefore it always belonged to them? Or, you know, could they recapture the rights? Who has the rights to the artwork, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, some of that um, stuff is lost in the murky waters, I think. Now, if I did have any money left over, I would take the money left over and give it to um, the Amarillo Design Bureau and, and have them uh, re art, do artwork and update all of their games. So that's what I took all my leftover money. If I had any bring all of their old Trek licensing into the, uh, into the 21st century, huh? update it, come up with some new stuff. Byron in, initial impression. First guess you got a million bucks to do something yeah. cool for the hobby. What do you think you'd do with that? Well, uh, first thing I'd, I hire a project manager at a six figure salary. That could be me. And then I would start, <laughs> then I would start producing alternative counter artwork and map artwork for some of those in any game where their community of users would like to see something new and interesting, and exciting, be they old or be they new. Uh, I, I really like how, since we're talking about board game, uh, or BGG variants, how, um, there was a, a new, an updated version of Melee, the old Steve Jackson mm-hmm. game that has some really nice artwork on it. I'm going to say something that might get me kicked off this call immediately, but <laughs> I am not a fan of NATO counters. Um, it's not that I don't understand them, but I don't understand them. So I like little pictures of tanks and, and airplanes, especially airplanes, because I like looking at the airplanes and pictures of soldiers. So I enjoy that that graphic image. Computer graphics is, has, is now accessible everywhere. 3D printing is now available re- readily or very cheap. So what I'd really like to do is take a, have three or four different kind of flavors, if you will, of uh, of uh, of artwork for all these games, you know, I'd love to see something by, um, uh, you know, like a World War One game where the characters look like the guys from, um, you know, this goddamn this war by uh, Tignus, who's unfortunately passed, you know, or by the guy, the guys who drew drew uh, the grizzled to get stuff like that, so that you can see that, you know, whatever in whatever game you want, and just go across and choose a selection of games because, yeah, I mean, the counters for Caesar at Elysia are nice, but you know, it would be so much better if when I'm looking at that cavalry unit, I wasn't also reminded of the riders of Rohan from uh, Sauron <laughs> from, from uh, the Siege of Minas Tirith. Yeah. The, um, some of the Worthington block games, um, New York, 1775, 1776, the New York one, the, uh, uh, there's like a Saratoga one. There's a couple of them. Um, they do come with two different sets of stickers that you can put on the blocks. They've got one that's just the regular old uh, basic symbology, and then they've got one that's slightly snazzier artwork, whether it's crossed rifles or, you know, a guy on a horse or whatever. Um, some of the headgear for some of the leaders. So, so some of the Worthington games do give you that option between the two different kinds of stickers that you can pick and choose which one you prefer to, yeah. to slap on the, it, on the thing. Yeah. And I think there's a really interesting opportunity for things like science fiction and fantasy games. And I know this is going to sound really geeky, but, you know, every now and then there'll be a science fiction movie where they have a single artist or maybe a couple artists design all the the gear, the clothing for all the alien races that come together, all the fantasy races. And they all use the same sort of thematic elements. But, you know, that's we here on our planet, not science fiction or fantasy, you know, uh, uh, 
traditional Japanese clothing looks very different than traditional European clothing. So the, the ability to hire different designers and maybe even, you know, uh, like clothing designers or artists who can design, you know, a space race that no one's ever thought of. It would just, it would just add that whole concept of here's a different group of people or different group of species from another planet who are so totally different than us that they're wearing clothing that we would never think of. And that isn't just a riff on what the, you know, the earthlings who are being invaded are wearing, because that's all coming out of the same graphic mind, if you will, and when you use yeah. a single designer. Yeah, I, there, there's a couple of fashion shows that you see snippets of on TV that certainly look like some alien race designers were involved in the uh, the design of some of those clothes, some, some of the clothing there. Um, all right. So so, Rocky, you got an extra five and a half minutes to think about this ahead of these other guys. What, what do you think? You got a million bucks to do something with. What, what do you think you might try to consider doing to, to improve the wargaming hobby? Um, well, after buying a million dollars worth of games for myself, because that's why I'm supporting all the other uh, you know, publishers and designers out there. Um, now, I mean, I, I like I like BB Mike's you know, sort of the bring back the past. I like uh, Jack's uh, let's uh, go with alternatives. But uh, uh, I think we always talk about also the the graying of the hobby and, and the cameras are not going to be turned on for this podcast. So nope. you can't see, you know, my gray hair and everybody else's. But uh, we've always talked about how do you, how do you, how do you support the young designers? How do you support the new blood? How do you support the new players? So uh, the professional wargaming world has looked at it. How do you, what, was there a pipeline? Is there a syllabus? Is there something you can do to help uh, the new designers learn the trade or somebody who's interested? So, you know, endowing a scholarship and uh, supporting a uh, an education program, um, it's it's more than just saying, "Hey, we're gonna you know fund a venture venture cap." I don't know, even then, maybe venture capital, some uh, war game uh, design and war game publishing uh, pieces. But but I think the it's 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 awesome to look back at the past. But um, maybe with this, we could do something and look towards the future. So that way, we're supporting that artist that's going to be doing that uh, snazzy graphics that uh, that Jack's talking about. We're going to be uh, supporting a designer that can explore some of those older titles uh, that BB Michael bring back so that they can then go off and do the next great thing uh so a little bit look forward maybe uh but again a million dollars ain't gonna go that far but you hand it over to some of these uh small (laughs) groups and maybe maybe it will every little bit can help You're actually stumbling into where I was going to go for my answer. And and I was going to take it a little further than you had right now. um, And and I know about a bunch of these just from, from our, you know, work with connections online, as well as some of the other overlap that I've got with the practitioner world um, as it's focused on, on sort of the practitioner world mainly, but there, there are a handful of places around the U S specifically, although there's there's ones and twos internationally as well, where there is an occasional game design course, right? Rex Bryan's mm-hmm. got his course up in McGill where, you know, it's it's that 400 level course that he teaches on, uh, you know, that, that he talks about through Sims, but it's, it's a serious game design course, but it is a single course. Um, Sebastian's got the class at Georgetown. Um, a lot of folks sort of use the Georgetown University Wargaming Society and that class as interchangeable terms um it, it's partly sebastian's own fault because of the way he refers to them but but right now the the support for goose is one class 
in places where you find an actual game design program, we've got two of them here in town with me and Raleigh. One's at William Peace University and one's at the local um, community college system here at, at Wake Tech. The simulation and game design programs are less game design than they are game development, right? They're more about game code writing because they're all digitally focused because they're trying to address the needs of the marketplace. And, and the Raleigh area here actually happens to be kind of a hotbed of uh, video game design. Epic Games is six miles away from me, is, is their headquarters. Uh, for folks that don't know, Epic Games are the Fortnite guys, among many other things. But we've also um, Ubisoft and NCSoft and a couple of other big studios have had um, development shops set up here in town. Uh, the guys that did the, the Temple Run mobile game way back when, they're based here in town. So, I mean, we've got a lot of, of digital game development here in town but not a lot of tabletop game development even up in in uh in the upper midwest where places like minneapolis and uh in madison and milwaukee have a lot of game design talent there's not a lot of game design instruction in the universities up there there are one-off classes here and there uh, we even had a previous podcast where, where we brought in Rex, we brought in Sebastian, we brought in Jeff Tidbull, who runs Left Justified Studios, previously worked at Atlas Games, has taught a one-off game design class. I was a guest speaker for a uh, class Matt Forbeck taught online during the pandemic um, on game design. But again, a one-off class. I would want to take that million bucks, um, take a significant chunk of it, and endow a chair somewhere uh, for a full professor of tabletop game design. But with the stipulation that it can't be a single course sort of thing, right? We got to bring in some other faculty as a part of that to build a program for tabletop game design that, that becomes a little more interdisciplinary, right? You're going to need the stats class. You're going to need the graphic design class. Not that you have to become a graphic designer, but you have to understand the principles of it. And, and you're going to need some history classes that will overlap and, and probably some current events, poli-sci sociology types of classes to help overlap with this. But to get us beyond just a single course, course and into an actual program of study that gets you at least a minor in game design, if not an actual degree in game design somehow. And I think that's something, especially wargaming focused, that I think would make a, a significant difference. The balance of that I would want beyond what was used for for the chair uh, or for, for endowing that, that, that faculty position, I would want to use the balance of that towards building out and curating a library of war games. Going back similar to what Mike was saying, not just that you've got the, the giant Dr. Seuss machine that you can hit print and spit stuff out the other end, but that we can actually develop a library of these things where you can walk in and you know, I want it to look like Eric Walter's third floor game room, right? Because <laughs> Because I've actually been in, I, not at his current house, but at his previous house, I've been in Walter's game library. Colonel Walters has a fantastic game library, and you walk in there and you just sort of kind of fall to your knees. It's, it's pretty <laughs> earth-shattering. Um, I, I think that's where I would I would want the money to go is beyond just a single course and let's build out a full program of study. So Rocky, kind of taking your idea and multiplying it a little bit. Byron, I think you were wanting to jump in there with a thought. Uh, no, I'm not. I was going to make a comment, but you, you kind of backed into it by talking about, uh, the, <laughs> you know, the 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 sort of lack of game design classes and so. And it, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing. I did uh, an undergrad, or part of my undergrad was in history. One of the courses that was available to us in in, in the history course was a study of propaganda. And one of the things the school assignments was to make a propaganda film about whatever topic you wanted. But, oh wow! Yeah. And, uh, 
And I sort of think back on some of the courses I've, I've I took in my undergrad, and there are so many opportunities in retrospect to have made some kind of, have gamified some of the topic. I mean, as a student project, man. And even as things as what might sound mundane, like I took a course in the opening of the Canadian West or expansion to the, uh, the Canadian West. Well, in Canada, we don't have a version of the Oregon Trail. Either on either on a text based or computer or board game, but there are some uh, incredible stories that could be told through um, through a student group working on things like that. So, I'd love to see more exploration of those kinds of ideas in the academic world. Of you know, why do I have to write a paper on you know whatever the you know the battle of you know the streets of Paris and the you know. Why can't I create a game on that? Why why not Battle of Duck Lake? A, a dear friend of mine, Mark Wallisham, has a battle on some of the. Uh, it was now created a, a game uh, a game on the, uh, the you know the Métis or the Métis Rebellion, the Louis Rebellion here in Canada, and uh, it just it surprised it surprised me that it took so long for someone to do some of these things. And I think at an academic level or in the classroom environment, it wouldn't be your whole project. You'd still have to have some footnotes and. Bibliography references. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, I, I think part of that you know, is yeah, that there I are so that's... few faculty members out there that are equipped to to understand exactly. how to grade a game like that. Yeah. That, that it becomes very hard to to figure out whether or not the game actually adequately expresses the point that the faculty member is trying to get across in, in any of that. <laughs> I don't want to turn this entire thing into a giant academic discussion, but but Mike, any reactions to, to any of the ideas that the other three of us threw out here? Nope, they all sound good to me. Let's go for it. <laughs> we just got to find a million dollars, right? If I had a million dollars. If I had a million dollars. Exactly. All right, so let's spend the next 40 minutes trying to figure out how to get a million dollars. <laughs> Are you talking to the wrong guy here? So next. Yeah. <laughs> Well, <laughs> you, you, doing well. You, you know, Rocky mentioned uh, uh, approaching a, a venture capital uh, agency, but I, I think the only way to, to make a small fortune in the wargaming business is start with a large fortune and watch it diminish. Yeah. You know, so yeah. Well, uh, unfortunately, venture capital-backed game companies aren't always the greatest thing. Witness the meltdown that's happened over Evil Genius Games over the past six months, mm. and uh, perhaps venture capitalism-backed game companies aren't necessarily the best way to go. Although that could just be the particular personalities involved in that company. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kurt Schilling might have a comment about that as well. Well, yeah, yeah. That uh, yeah. well. He's had one incredibly successful one and then a couple of, you know, sort of wet turds. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think we could all agree that MMP are, are largely more successful than not. Whereas yes. the rest of them that now, to my knowledge, none of the other shilling backed projects were tabletop companies. I think they were. That's all exactly right. They were all digital. Yeah. They're all digital, but yeah, yeah. What you got, Rocky? Well, I was just thinking here, you know, going back to it, but BB Mike was talking about some of the older games and uh, and bringing them back. And uh, uh, aside from all the legal issues um, and you know the possibility of updating them, um, just the the historical piece that you were talking about, like the game library, uh, mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. Uh, game mechanics have have evolved over the times, but in many ways 
there's still a lot of first principles in there. And, and I think a lot of uh, it's all those early games have a lot of good first principles they can teach. And it, you're, I, I, you know, I really sympathize with BB Mike is sometimes you want to get those old ones out. I got to put some old titles in my uh, in my uh, collection here, you know, going back in 45 years. Um, and it's, you wrote about tactics too for us. Uh, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, there's the, some of the fundamentals are in there and they, they don't change. You can, you can update them, you can play around with them, but they don't change. But uh, yeah, you have to wonder. I, I really is sort of exciting to take what B Mike does and what 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 Jack's talking about. There is like take some of those old games, those original uh, SPI, the original Avalon Hills that literally only had an eight color palette because yeah. that was literally what the state of the art technology was. And and yeah, NATO counters were were easy because you could do that dtp um you know just a couple of boxes and a little things because it was uh the printing presses were again weren't uh weren't super uh super fancy so you know taking some of those old games and and bringing them up to date um now i grew up with nato counters so they don't bother me but at the same time you're right there's something extra immersive about it to uh get a better piece and and now uh, i don't i don't think that we need to apply the cmon model to everything but a couple <laughs> of uh a couple of little pieces and you know wood wood seems to sell so maybe you spend a little more on a, some wood and you'll sell more games because people just flock to it because oh it's got wooden bits oh my gosh uh so there's well, a lot to be stand up there. leader markers from uh wilderness war or liberty or death they all seem to be yeah. you know sort of colonial north america that have the stand-up leaders in them but yeah. um yeah, th- well, there's, there's, there's some- a lot that can be done there's there's yeah, a yeah. lot more i mean even just what what to take jacks to the next next piece is you know you bling out the counters but there's also and this may be wrapped around to where we originally were some of the bgg variants is with the with a little bit more money that you could invest in some of these productions you can get further um even though you pivoted away from it some of the bgg variants uh some of the stuff has turned out uh well uh, i look at my uh uh the um red storm uh, uh game air game from uh gmt there was a uh, there were all the all the planes were originally on tables all the stats are on tables to the side and somebody on bgg said oh i can put these on cards and eventually that became an official variant so all these little things that can help us to uh take the game that one extra level step uh yeah maybe maybe you become the there's some of that aftermarket maybe that's maybe that's another option you know think of it as like an aftermarket uh Mm -hmm. piece uh yeah you're gonna have some some folks that are gonna be saying oh you're 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 going after after my money well i got a million dollars so i can try to make some money too um (laughs) I don't have to just spend it. Can't I use it to make some money? Um, <laughs> but uh, so, I mean, bringing back the old games, blinging them out, adding different accessories, even if it's just like a canvas map uh, for a little yeah. bit extra. All these little pieces can help uh, bring the market along. Uh, maybe because some companies that had to make some decisions early on to save costs, we can help them out and make some money for ourselves along the way too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, you know, this is the th- when you talk about old games. I kind of wish Jim was on and we could ask him his opinion of, of, of rebirthing System 7 with uh, more more colorful graphic counters. I remember the first time I saw a war game that wasn't black ink on a different, on, on whatever color background counter. Um, I remember the first time I saw a War and Peace with white ink on something. I, I was I was floored. I was like, oh my God, we can do other than black ink on stuff. That's cool. Because uh, the War and Peace counter palette had white ink on some background colors and had 
yellow ink on some background colors. So you had both both yellow icons and white icons on blue for, you know, the French with their, you know, the, the actual French forces versus the French allies. Man, that was cool. <laughs> like, whoa, there's different colors. And by the time I got around to seeing like the original Victory Games NATO Next War in Europe with, you know, different color backgrounds for the NATO symbols, you know, what sorcery yeah. is this? This is, a, you know, that that was wild. So, so yeah, definitely some graphic upgrades would be nice. Um, I wonder if some people wouldn't want just like a mass size upgrade for uh, for a whole lot of the games and take all those half inch counters and blow them up to like seven sixteenths or bigger just so that all us old folks could actually read what's on them anymore. You know, so- it's funny you say that because I just did an unboxing of World War II campaigns, which was you know reprint of the old GDW uh, series one twenty games, yep. and. I was I was kind of disappointed, you know, talk about here's an opportunity to bring back some of these old games. I mean, they weren't I won't say they weren't bad games, but they weren't you know great games. Um, but there was an opportunity to maybe change the artwork, change the maps, upgrade the counters. And they really didn't do that. But what they did do is they made the half inch counters, you know, five eighths inch counters. They made the text and the rule books larger and the maps a little larger and easier to read. So they kind of did that. They know their audience. <laughs> they know their audience. I <laughs> Remember, this is a company that still has the paper order form on the catalog for you to <laughs> handwrite your, your credit card number and mail it to them. So, yeah, they, they know their audience. They do know their audience. It's clear. <laughs> Mike, you're right. This, this does overlap a little bit with some of the Wargaming Wishes episodes that we've done in the past. Um, you know, th- those were just sort of generally aspirational kinds of things and I think included uh, a, a bunch of wishes for the audience and each other as well whereas you know trying to focus this a little bit more towards the hobby as a whole you know that that million bucks I would want to definitely go as I said before start building some sort of academic home base for mm-hmm. for war game design and development over time um, to, to kind of give it a little bit more gravitas out there. If I can't find a faculty home or any sort of, of place of higher education willing to, to to take on this thing, I think I would want to take that million dollars and find as many copy editors and public relations people as I could for all of the major publishers. Because God knows I'm sick of finding typos in rule books. And, and we got to find somebody that can put out a coherent press release for a company and actually engage in, basically, I would want to take Danny Lowe, who used to work for Hatchet and Pandasaurus, and I'm not sure where she's working now. I would want to take Danny, and I would want to clone her at least once for every major wargame publisher, because she's really goddamn good at her job, and every wargame publisher needs somebody like her working for them. That's what we need out there. We need a whole lot of Dannys. So, Rocky, you look like you're about to jump through the screen at me. I mean, yeah, I mean, copy <laughs> editors, uh, yeah, I mean, there's more re- just recently, there's been games out there. Um, there's some threads going around right now about, you know, who's got some of the worst version rule books. Who do you go to to help you with your rule book? Um, and, and it's sort of, I mean, it's taken some of the big companies now are starting to bring on a, a you know, somebody, a copy editor, somebody who's trying to, to develop and put the pieces together. But you're right. They would say that's a, a technical writer skill mm-hmm. is is hard to find to begin with. And then a technical writer that can do war games and war game rules uh, 
is 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 not something you train to it's good it literally has to be an art that they walk into um well you're so, taking yeah. one step beyond where i was going i was just thinking copy editing like typos and punctuation and ver- subject verb agreement i think you're going a step beyond that to like actual editorial review of does this make sense and how does it flow and are we doing things in the right order you know I, yeah there's, there's in your mouth or is that kind of where you were no at? no no that's exactly i mean um whenever i look at rule books i look at uh i go back Back to my example that I, that I strive for is, or that I point to is uh, Root from uh, Leader Games. There's two rule books. One is uh, how to play and the other one is the laws of Root. Um, one is very conversational, uh, very, uh, call it, you know, for lack of a better phrase, Euro game approach, uh, tabletop or tabletop board game. The other one is the, the, the rules, the law of Root is, is more almost like your classic uh, war game uh, yeah. case notation and such but just, and, and it's a great recognition that how you teach and how you reference the rules are two different ways um, and some companies can afford to put the two rule books in there some of them don't um, I, I get disappointed these days when when people are like don't even try to do the rule book they're just like hey go to our YouTube and watch this video um, okay <laughs> but many times it suffers from the same problems is because it just doesn't communicate very clearly what the game mm-hmm. is or give you a reference point that you can go back to in the middle of the game and say what what is this and how did i do that where was that found and so th- yeah. just that part of the rule books i mean you just want to talk Rocky about I mean, from watching Phoebe mike play. was talking games or uh, talking <laughs> bringing back old games just to bring back in bring in somebody who can write a, a freaking rule book that would be nice <laughs> Yeah. Rodney from Watch It Played has stood on a table multiple times on different videos about uh, war game rule books that, that they suck for learning the game, right? War game rule books are, are generally a great reference tool for how to play the game, you know, to, to like look up rule disputes. But in terms of learning how to play the game, war game rule books suck. Um, right. And it's, I think it's, he's, it's he's more right than wrong. <laughs> Nah, I disagree. That's not strictly uh, limited to war game rule books. not true. <laughs> you're right, but the context of the discussion was was around war games in in, in particular. That that was yeah. the conversation he was having. Um, I, you're probably not, not wrong, but but that is one thing that the the role playing guys figured out 25, 30 years ago, right? The mm-hmm. the different ways in which you can learn ro- war gaming rules. I mean, how long did it take for us to get around to ASL starter kits versus mm-hmm. intro? boxes for role-playing games you know there's like a 30-year lag time there yeah um, from the uh the intro rpg set to the you know asl starter kit or or any other intro to a larger system or series kit out there but um you know in the, in the context of war games in particular was the one rodney was talking about so and, and certainly you see the digital uh world or maybe whether it's corporate backed or whether it's just individual, uh, you know, fanboys uh, created content, things like the GMT Panzer series has some great little videos. Like they have like sort of two tank scenarios where they just highlight uh, uh, an aspect of how this world, this situation works. Cause you're right. Putting so many, you can only put so many examples of play in, in a, in a work, in a rule book. I think you, sh- I think there should be more examples of play uh, <laughs> or they should, you should have lots of them available because inevitably um, uh, those, you know, those always come up. Um, but you know, when you talk about sort of doing this for the, for the, for the old school games, I wonder maybe if this is, so we're, we're we're starting to run into not just having a, a faculty member who's in charge of the forward thinking future of war game, but also have an archaeologist 
war gamer where they go, what do you think they meant by rule 24-7 <laughs> supply lines? And then they have a conference of people sitting around trying to, to parse this. Well, no, but it only makes sense if you use it with that map. And it would be sort of it would be like trying to figure out, you know, it's sort of like the Rosetta tablet. It's like trying to decipher the what those old languages were from the old rule books. So that would be it's a like, different faculty. That would be a different faculty within that same school. It's like back in the day that when it, when that when something like that would come up, you you wrote your letter out, put a stamp on it, and sent it to Avalon Hill, and they, they yeah. would answer it in the next general, or they would send you an answer back. Yeah. I, I'm just I, I'm I'm imagining you know Byron the the you know Doctor Byron Professor of Wargame Linguistics. <laughs> yeah, with, with with a big pipe sitting in a and with a you know tweed jacket with leather arm patches sitting there. Mm, well, you know the Victorian study with the heavy wooden furniture and all the games on the shelf behind you. Yes. Not gonna lie, that that does sound kind of cool. Yeah. So. The idea of, you know, what would you improve? How would you improve it? Why would you improve it? I think there are a lot of folks that have different ideas of what we could do um, out there. And and I'd be interested in hearing what the audience's take on some of this is also. So I would love to see, you know, some of the comments or pop into our, our forums. We've got a thread opened up on this uh, over in the forum. So, you know, we'd love to hear your ideas for if you had the million bucks um, and and you couldn't just bank it and, you know, run off and, and, you know, fill your own personal study full of games. Although Rocky, it's a great idea, right? Go support a whole bunch of game designers by buying their stuff. Um, but, but what is it you would want to do for the hobby and how to do it? Um, you know, Mike's, Mike's giant Dr. Seuss, you know, blue Panther Tron uh, printing press machine. Look, you, you would be employing a whole bunch of graphics dudes as a part of that, just to go back and update all the graphics on some of these things um, or, or a variety of technical people, even if you kept the graphics identical, just to to do all of the, the technical setup as a part of the printing on all of these things. So, I mean, that's that's still getting some folks in the hobby something to do um, and, and a pathway into this. Um, I, I will say it, it is a little surprising that nobody's mentioned that the greatest contribution they could make towards uh, the wargaming hobby is just trying to get everybody to stop being assholes on social media to each other. So, well, well, well now you're just dreaming. I know, I know, and it's only a million dollars. There's only so far you can get. Yeah. Yeah, we need a little bit more than a million for that. Yeah, um, uh, I mean, it is entertaining when the idea of a of, of a an endowed faculty chair for uh, for war game instruction and an actual war game uh, a, a degree in war game development somehow is less fanciful than the you know th than the other ideas that you would come up with, but. Oh, I guess this is the world we're in, huh? Yeah. So, uh, well, and, and, I, and I didn't, and I didn't say those two departments would get along. We have to figure out where the funding comes between them. <laughs> so, so I, hey, I'm going to throw one more question to the group, which is, what about and and a, a big part I think gaming for me and uh, hopefully everyone is the opportunity to get together with fellow gamers at conventions and things like that. Is there? Do we have an? I know. Do we have enough uh, game? conventions or game nights at places uh where people where especially young people can go and see a game being played and maybe uh get introduced to it I mean, the, the, the guys who are doing magic and pokemon they seem to have figured that stuff out right i mean magic the gathering produces a, a, a mtg produces a you know the lord of the rings and and uh you know the the one the one ring sells for a million dollars like 
how how does that happen over there? If you would just if one of us had just got the one ring card from the MTG Lord of the Rings, <laughs> that's how you would have solved that. That's where your funding model is. You just get um, uh, you know who's the rap star that bought it or the hip hop yeah. guy that bought it. Yeah, I I have some thoughts, but I'd be curious to see what what Rocky and Mike think. Rocky, what do you think? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting proposition. You got your choice of do you like go and support a large convention someplace and try to bring everyone together um go back to some of the old origins or gen con type models um or do you do you come up with some sort of a competitive play or a more widespread small uh go to support the stores uh you know take a take some of that million dollars invest in um, try to find the game or a series of games, um, something that can be played, uh, you know, in a in an evening, a short evening, uh, and, and set up a competitive play. I mean, X Wing did it, um, but uh, you know, try to find, try to get into some of those models too. That's an interesting. Uh, it's another interesting approach because you you're yeah. still out there. You're still trying to uh, evangelize for the hobby. Uh, you're still trying yeah. to bring in new players. You're still trying to uh, you know, support the publishers because they got to keep pumping out new content, new material and such. Um, with as fickle as war gamers are, maybe that every year you got to bring out not just a new expansion pack, you got to bring out a whole new game because <laughs> you know it's last year's game isn't going to be good enough for this year. Um, you always got to be trying to look for something new, um, something more than just updating the counters, uh, from Jack or or just uh bringing back the old game that you know we're all told is is horrible because it's hex encounters and CRT uh from the past uh try to find that new thing so yeah that's an interesting interesting uh suggestion there jack i mean the uh how do you just a million dollars to support the hobby we've talked about bringing back the old games we've talked about going academic forward some of it may just be getting some of that money into the hands of players um and supporting them through through local play or convention play uh, so they can make them believers and make them uh part of the hobby The 12th season of Mentioned and Dispatches is made possible by all of our Patreon supporters who pledged at the top level. The Armchair Dragoons would like to thank Michael Sunvorg, Fred and his dog, Chet Bell, Hellcat6, Patrick Garrity, Stagger Wing, Kevin Bertram, Mike Quigley, Martok and Joseph Knoll for their support of the Regiment of Strategy Gaming, which helps us bring you the best strategy gaming articles, events and this podcast. You can join us as a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash armchair dragons. Mike, what do you think before I, I jump in with, with my reaction to Byron's stuff here? I, I I like what Rocky said. I think, you know, get out. You'd have to, in my mind, conventions are great, but I mean, you've seen it branded origins were there and sometimes people will walk by and look at us like we're the visitors from Chernobyl and just kind of <laughs> just walk around us as far as they can. I think really that if you could get out there locally, you know, and introduce these games to, uh, you know, a lot of people have no idea what they hear war game and they think, oh, war, war is bad. And they just run away and it's, to, to get out there and and show them the game. I think we have the games. I don't think we, you know, you don't need to invent an introductory war game. I think you just we just need a better way of getting out there and showing it and and showing people what it is and what we do and, and building up interest that way. I think one of the reasons why you get some of the repeat engagement with the, the particular people you do for some of the things like the Star Wars X-Wing or the, uh, the Magic the Gathering, the Pokemons, the Yu-Gi-Ohs, the collectible card games, as well as 
some of the skirmish minis games as well is there is a a a consistent refresh of the the tools of the game itself many of those are collectible if not collectible at least sort of the the living air quotes around living right the 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 living expansions where there are constant new pieces being brought out that are almost universally backwards compatible the the collectible nature of it does impact things a little bit with the card games or some of the blind minis games but there's there's a constant refresh of material um usually you know it's going to be programmed to certain release schedules but then the events are built around those release schedules and I'm just not sure that we've got a whole lot of game systems out there other than ASL and maybe Commands and Colors that have enough of, of a constant churn, of a constant throughput of material to, to continually refresh that. Maybe, I mean, Commands and Colors could also include the Memoir 44 series. I just don't know that there's any publisher out there that has sufficient scale to, to constantly create the new content that is needed to continue to feed that event cycle that those guys that that the the structured and organized play folks depend on to constantly keep people coming back to the table because i know locally you know the, the friday night magic when you go see that at your friendly local game store like every quarter there is a new set dropping from from hasbro slash watsy of of here's a new magic the gathering set so here's the pre-release tournament here's the new release tournament here's the constructed deck league that we're going to play over the course of the next six eight ten weeks okay here's the second run through the league and then by the time all that you get through those four or five events you're into the next quarter and the next new release is coming out Mm -hmm. and at the risk of rocky like hanging up and never talking to me again this is kind of where we were going with the system reference document and maybe there's a common rule set that we can run off with and and let a lot of people build off of a you know off of a similar set and a similar licensing agreement that uh you know we talked with chris premis about way back you know over a year ago now when uh when, when Hasbro was doing all their OGL shenanigans, maybe we need some sort of consistent, constant framework that we can run with for uh, either a single publisher to have enough latitude to churn a whole, whole lot of different content through or that multiple publishers could be a part of that program. And uh, and I'll let Rocky go ahead and start cussing at me. Well, I'm not going to cuss at you. It's just as we're talking here, I'm just thinking about, you know, if we're we're trying to bring people in, uh, as, as much as I love, uh, you know, tabletop wargaming, I, I think we've actually sort of danced around it a little bit tonight. The, the old tabletop wargames... Um, and the the NATO counters, the the lack of color palette, uh, all those pieces have conspired against hobby war gaming over the years. Um, that people uh, just want to just just it doesn't catch their eye. Uh, to to somebody like myself, I mean, the old GEV, the black and white, uh, you know, printed on paper. That was that was great uh, back in the day. Uh, but nowadays. Uh, especially in this era of social media, and I think this is what Jack was getting at. They they want the bling, and uh, if we're going to do that for the hobby, you know, war gaming space, uh, I don't think it's going to necessarily be a tabletop war game. Uh, I think we're going to end up with uh, it's going to end up with uh, something that's going to look almost like a miniatures piece. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was uh, you you got me thinking here because we have little places we have some places on on uh, social media now, uh, Little Wars TV that does their games and stuff. 
that I was uh, I was uh, doing some uh, some uh, research for uh, an article for you and writing uh, there for the, for, the, uh, for the regiment. Um, I came across a British TV show from the 1970s late 70s that had uh, dr patty griffith and others mm-hmm. uh, i was a, it was a it was a weekly show in battleground and it was miniatures yeah and they just went yeah. off and fought the battles half hour tv show uh on regular tv and it was it was uh spectacular looking because they were doing it on the miniatures and miniatures tables and stuff and they had that figured out back then and if we did something like that now you know maybe it is an asl maybe it's a bolt action uh, maybe it's you know something else in there uh, with the miniatures, but uh, I think what we'd find is that the miniatures rules many times can end up being simpler than mm-hmm. some of these board games, um, tabletop war games, and that may be helping to get the people in. I think it's been tried. It's been tried. Uh, we had the uh, what was it? Access now is Ward C and some others. Uh, they've tried it, and it, for various reasons, it hasn't always worked out. But with a million dollars back in it, maybe we could make a difference. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I think it... though that. Go ahead, Mike. No, I was gonna, I was gonna say I think so. Yeah, bling I think is part of it, but kind of going back to what Brant said, and I, with wargaming, we are limited by our content. So if you have something like uh, Star Wars or Magic the Gathering, which is a good example, where yeah, you know, Magic the Gathering, you're going to have something new all the time because you're dealing with the fantasy universe, and you can add an unlimited amount of stuff to it. So if you're in wargaming, and I've got the Civil War, okay, GMT's U.S. Civil War, I can't come out next year and say, hey, we're going to do an expansion pack for U.S. Civil War, and you're going to have General Neo. And he's his his special powers. He doesn't need supply. He can go anywhere on the map he wants to. And if you like that expansion, stay tuned for next year because we're going to have spaceships and go to the moon. It's it's you know you're limited with what you have. You have if you're doing a battle, you're doing a campaign. There's really no new information to introduce to that where no. the the well, fantasy and the sci-fi yeah. games can do. Yeah. Well, yeah, yes and no. I mean. World War II was a pretty finite block of of activity, and yet ASL has been living on that. With yeah. how many ASL scenarios at this point? Um, you know, it, obviously the the more you zoom in, the smaller scale you've got. The wider you can cast that net for individual scenarios and games and activities, because then you take the Battle of Kursk and you've broken it up into seventy eight different scenarios <laughs> instead of just the one big battle of Kursk, but, but great battles, the American civil war, great campaigns, the American civil war, both of those series consistently continue to run. Part of the challenge you run into with some of those games is, you know, Friday night magic kids going to come sit down with his deck and he's going to play six games in the three hours that he's there that, that, you know, his parents drop him off or they're hanging out doing something else in the, in the side while, while he's sitting down playing in that tournament or, or sort of the organized role play kinds of things where, you know, drop the kid off and she's playing, playing, you know, four encounters that night and then comes back next week and plays another four encounters because there's a consistent story, but you don't have to leave it set up on a table the whole time. Yeah. And and so if you're going to run that extended OCS campaign, yeah, you might get a half a dozen people consistently show up and play and, you know, one new person each week that maybe eventually becomes a, a long-term player, but can the stores give up the space for those long-term games yeah. versus a, a repetitive set of micro, a micro games sounds bad because not just small footprint, but quick playing where you can play two and three and five and six in one night. That's that's yeah. a lot harder for us to pull off in the war game world yeah. than, than some of those card guys or, or even some of the minis guys with something like a Star Wars attack wing yeah. where you've only got like three ships on a side or whatever. Well, yeah. 
yeah, I think Rocky said it, you know, if, if you you want to do something like that with a war game, to make it that fast and quick, it's suddenly, yeah. it's probably not going to be a war game. And, and tie it in with one of the favorite yeah. media licenses of all time with Star Wars. Byron, what you got? I was, I was going to say, well, yeah, well, first off, you know, you, you we're dealing with, you know, there's been some great comments about the fact that, hey, there are some games that are based on an externally generated IP, Star Wars, Battlestar, all those kinds of great topics. And they have an inherent audience that's coming to that game because they're Star Wars or Star Trek guys. And they love that. Um, World War II doesn't have an IP. There isn't, uh, you know, there isn't a, uh, uh, it's not a branded product where they have writers creating things. But having said that, you know, why isn't there a, a Magic the Gathering equivalent, like, or an easier version of Upfront, which really is just a World War II version of a card game, like, why don't we have an an easier version of Upfront that... There were attempts it, at several of them. Yes. Um, <laughs> you, you had Echelons of Fire, Echelons of Fury in the mid-90s. You had Last Crusade in the mid-90s. Um, since then, there's there's been two or three others. Honestly, you could you could reskin a lot of the Mech Warrior card game into some World War II stuff yes. and not have to yeah. change a lot of the mechanics. Because um, yeah. a lot of the principles of warfare that were illustrated in that old card game still apply. Um, or 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 a world of tanks, you know. Yeah. Card game. Yeah. The you know. so there was a world of tanks card game at one point. Um, yeah. it, it because we it, Mike, were you there in 2014 with uh with the the very first war game HQ at Origins? I don't think you no. were there with us yet. No. Um. Yeah. So the the world of tanks dudes uh had something for it, one of the companies there had a licensed world of tanks card game and it was crap. It was essentially top trumps with with world of tanks artwork. Um. It was it was dreadful and uh and it was funny because we took some pictures and like sent them to a couple of the people we knew over at the World of Tanks digital side because we'd been in talks with them about maybe bringing a digital something to the Wargame HQ. And uh, and their reply was, we've never heard of this in our lives. <laughs> that was kind of yeah. funny that, you know, the World of Tanks digital guys didn't yeah. even know the World of Tanks card game existed, which we, yeah. we found hilarious. Um, but so, so yeah, a, a good World of Tanks card game, maybe. Uh, <laughs> but the crap they tried in 2014... Probably not so much. Rocky, what are you thinking? Uh, two things. Uh, go support Ian Brown's uh, Maneuver Warfare card game. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah I, I play tested it. Yeah, Deeds Foundation. Um, and then second, you know, maybe we uh, maybe we need to take these million dollars. A million dollars might not be enough, but uh, let's go after that uh, that holy grail, that uh, digital sand table, that virtual sand table that uh, you can come in, you swipe, you set up, you uh, hit save, and you walk away. I mean, yeah. I, I personally, I don't. I I don't like uh, screens and the digital for me. I mean, partially I'm 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 old and I don't have a giant screen in my in my office and everything. So uh, it's hard for me to do gaming on a screen. But doing it on a flat tabletop with a virtual sand table or something like that, maybe we take our million dollars and we bring that one to uh, to help bring that one to fruition, uh, so that we can we can get the tabletop world in the in the digital world and, and get the best of both. Are you talking about something that actually kind of 3Difies itself or are you just talking about taking the 80-inch TV and laying it flat and putting a touch screen on it? <clears throat> well, you know, I'd, I'd have to uh, hire that project manager with that million dollars and see what we can do. <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I, I think would, I would willing to be that 3D. PM for you. <laughs> <laughs> Six figures, of course. Yes, yeah. Which, but, uh, uh, yeah. 
taking it and laying it flat and doing a little bit of a 3D. Again, we're almost getting into the miniatures world. Yeah. Uh, because it's, it's people just moving uh, flat counters around on a on a flat surface are probably, yeah, okay, that's that's cute. <laughs> uh, but, uh, I mean, you see Jim with these, even just the, the tabletop simulator and what he's doing with the uh, voxels and, and that sort of stuff, just, just bringing it even just in a 2D screen, but bringing the 3D effects mm-hmm. into it, uh, still is, is, is exciting. And, and mm-hmm. uh, people log in to, to watch it. Yeah. Uh, well, it's I think doing something for the hobby. Some folks already have uh, essentially the, the, the touch screen tabletop. I, I've seen them at, at different conventions here and there. Um, I, I want to say somebody had one at Gamma Expo last year, but I don't remember for sure. I'll let you know in a couple of weeks if somebody's got one at Gamma Expo this year. But there's uh, the the idea of the flat touch screen that you can sort of poke and prod at. That's that's not necessarily new. What might be an interesting way to do it rather than the, the advanced technology Technology of 3Difying what comes out of that screen. Maybe we go back to, to Byron's suggestion of blinging the game up a little bit, where the minis um, ha- have some sort of distinguishing characteristic, whether it's an RFID chip or whatever the technology turns out to be, that the screen recognizes what the minis are and what they can do, and and helps enforce the rules on you that way, but allows you to move stuff around a bit. Um, because I think that's definitely one place where the the digital world has the tabletop mm-hmm. world beat is in learning the rules, if only through what it doesn't allow you to do, right? I mean, there's there's nothing saying that you can't pick up that cavalry unit, and just move them across the ocean on a tabletop game. You can't do that in a digital game. You can't do that in, in you know, War and Peace Digital or in a Civ game or something like that on the computer. Um so maybe that hybrid with the screen and the mini walking around on that touch screen helps helps bridge that gap for learning and then the question becomes how many of those consoles can you put in how many different games to help bring folks to to learn in war games before they start complaining about why that touch screen won't play Catan for them so <laughs> you know and there have been I mean we mentioned uh you know the the collectible card games you know the pirates constructible strategy game by yep. uh, I think that was by whiskers that was actually quite popular at the time uh for at least a couple of years and it would be interesting, and there's no reason why you couldn't do a tanks constructible war game or a World War One or World War Two airplanes constructible war game or something like that. And, you know, you mentioned things like RFID chips. Hey, there you go. <laughs> the audience can't see me holding up a bunch of sealed packs of these on screen, but yeah, I've got a bunch of the... The yeah. Davy Jones curse still in the packs here yeah. that I uh, I got from a friend of mine when he yeah. passed away. I've yeah. I've got a whole bunch of these. Some some in packs, some some opened yeah. up. But yeah, that's exactly the one you're saying. They actually had a Star Wars constructible strategy game for a while, also. They did, yeah. And but there's no reason why you can't introduce something like an RFID chip into that tabletop gameplay. And whether it's it's a touchscreen or whether it's your phone or whether it's a device that you need to buy that you know like the old Popomatic popper where you hit the button and it rolls the <laughs> dice and that little device senses how many ships are on the table or tanks or airplanes or orcs or whatever you want you know and it can sense where those things are because it's low range rfid you know and and turn something a little bit more automated rather than flipping through page you know the rule books and stuff like that so there there certainly is um new technology i think is going to could certainly be leveraged in new ways uh that we haven't seen you the new that game u-boat that came out uh two years ago i think it was two years ago you know i i don't know if that worked but it was certainly a step in the direction 
of figuring out what multimedia and tabletop gaming can look like. It's it's been at least three years because it won the CSR three years ago for uh, well, it won a bunch of CSRs, and you know, source of much controversy when it happened a couple of years ago. Uh, Best map in the game. (laughs) Best map in a war game. Yes, you vote. I do want to throw out one uh, one last idea, and and I I hadn't come prepared with this one. It was something one of y'all said that that kind of made me think of it, even though you weren't mentioning this directly. Um, a, a couple of years ago, there was a company that's that's based just outside of town here that I had interviewed with um, for for a job with these guys, and they uh, th- they're actually in a whole lot of grocery stores around here of all things. Um, and, and I think the technology would be really cool to turn around and apply to the game business as a whole, but, but could certainly be micro targeted toward the war game business, depending on when and where and how you put this into place. But what they've got is essentially they've got some, some, uh, tablets on a loop in some different grocery stores in the beer and wine aisle of all places where they're usually near a lot of the local breweries displays there and, and the micro brews where they're playing some stuff on a loop. Here's the story of our brewery. Here's some of the people that work here. Here's some of the things we do and how we do it. And it's it, it's an extended commercial on a loop, right? If you sat in the grocery store all day, I'm sure some of the employees that hate these things or have completely learned to tune them out because it's not anything more than about a three or four minute loop that just constantly goes all day long. But what if we had something similar to that that showed some basic game player explained what's in the game and you know what it does and how it does and and we bolted these things onto the racks at some game stores. Um, I mean, again, these things are pretty tightly secured to to their locations in in grocery stores. I imagine we could figure out a way to lock them down in game stores. But but something that was kind of playing on a loop as as this interactive digital billboard that said, "Here are some of the games. Here's what you're looking at. Here's you know the the kinds of things they cover. Let's watch a little bit of it in action. Let's see some of what's happening without us necessarily having to park a demo." team in the game or in the store, you know, semi-permanently in case somebody wanders by. That that might be something that's a little off the wall, would certainly be expensive, would chew up a whole lot of our million dollars that we're talking about here. Uh, but maybe that's something that, that we could figure out a way to put in some stores. Again, like you're not going to find war games in Target or Walmart, but you would find Battletech in Target mm-hmm. these days. Um, you know, the, the, there's, there are Far more hobby games in Target than I ever thought I would see in my lifetime at this point. Yeah. Between Seven Wonders and the 12 different flavors of Risk, but even things like uh, Villainous and Munchkin and, you know, again, some of the, the the 40K Space Marine universe. You're now seeing some of those on the shelves in the mass market stores. How long before we could get a Twilight Struggle kind of, you know, war game adjacent something in there and maybe start kind of, you know, kicking that door open bit by bit and use something like a digital interactive billboard as a tool for grabbing some interest. I don't know if it would work or not. Mike, what do you think? I don't know. It may work. I mean, something like that, you know, when we're at Origins would be helpful, right? You're running a game and you have that big video playing. Here's here's what we're doing and here's the basics of it. Maybe it would people would stop and watch that instead of watching us and learn something. You're saying they don't learn stuff from us? No, we always say, go away, kid. I'm trying to run a game here. <laughs> no, we do, we do not do that at Origins. Yeah. I mean, the challenge, of course, is like, 
we don't know if it would work. And the only way to find out is to spend a lot of money and hope. And you you could spend a lot of money and find out it doesn't work. A lot of people would probably look at that as, well, you just wasted a bunch of money. Well, no, you did learn something valuable out of it. It just cost you a lot of money to do. Yeah. Or maybe not. I'm saying education can be expensive. You know, Rocky, what do you think? Or or maybe not. Uh, I mean, I could see uh, all all this, all that we're talking about here is how do we make war games more attractive to people? How do we get them to uh, to to make that make that initial stop and and yeah. take a look and and pick up a game and try to play? So I mean, if even if you were just in, at the war games headquarters and you had a a large screen TV um, uh, sitting there with a with a three minute loop just explaining the game while you guys are playing it, uh, a little bit of the history of the game, a little bit of history of what the battle is or whatever it is, uh, and then a little bit of a, a little bit of a short explanation. As people walk by, they see you playing, but then they stop and they watch that two-minute, three-minute piece, that may be what gets them to come back. That may be yeah. what, yeah. what gets them to, to come through. So, I mean, how do we how do we spend this million dollars to get people involved is what all this really the last hour has come down to how do we get how how do we get people to engage is it is it is it bring back the old uh for for nostalgia is it is it bling it out uh uh, make it more more visually attractive is it is it try to uh, create a academic pipeline uh to help people uh learn and engage with games better or is it just simply uh spend money on 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 a on a particular game (laughs) or system to get them out there all these yeah. choices are out there, but I, I'm just I'm just looking back in the last hour going like all this has just come down to is how do we get people involved? Um, yeah. And and I'd love to say a million dollars would help, but I mean it's probably uh, needs a little bit more love than that. Well, it won't uh, hurt. Keep it I done. mean, let's yeah. let's. <laughs> It's, um, it won't, well, it, it, just a second, Byron. I'm, I'm going to throw this over to you in a second, but I, I just to react to what Rocky said. I mean, on on one hand, there's the idea of taking that million dollars. If I had a million dollars, if I had and, and trying to use it to heighten engagement with the general public. And there's two different ways you could really. There's two different paths you could take there. One path is to to make some changes to what we do to make it potentially make it more attractive to the casual person cruising by. Another path might be to to better explain what already exists in the hope of capturing somebody who might be interested in what's already there without the changes, but either doesn't know it exists or doesn't understand what they're looking at. So I think that's two different potential courses of action for for broadening the participation pool. I think there's another course of action, and, and Mike, this might be a little bit of where you were going, which is catering to the existing people in the hobby by broadening their available choices. Because I'm not sure Mike's, you know, the 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 Blue Panther Tron game reprinter, you know, Omatic that 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 necessarily brings new players in, but it's great service for the existing players. Mm-hmm. Um I think is is definitely a piece there. I think the the academic suggestion that I was looking for was less servicing the existing community than trying to be a little more forward looking and <clears throat> preserving and not necessarily codifying because I don't want it to to sort of become this overly rigid kind of thing, but sort of capturing and collecting what exists as well as the history of what's been there um, as, as some sort of record or service to the future of of what we're looking at. They're all different kinds of engagement, but I'm not necessarily sure they're all focused on 
broadening the existing player pool. That that that's absolutely a valid course of action, but I, I'm not sure that's the only kinds of courses of action that we've described tonight. Byron, I just yeah. ran off with monologue. Yeah, no, that, I mean, I was going to say, you know, I think one of the challenges really, and, and if you think about when each one of us got involved in the hobby and why we continue to remain involved in it, I think one of the questions you ultimately have to think about is how do you create a new nostalgia? How do you create those new memorable experiences for whoever wants to play, be they young or older, just new, new gamers and my wife has never played a war game. I would love to see her get into a game where she could talk about that experience. I mean, she, she has played uh, Settlers of Catan. She's had a great time doing that. She enjoyed it. You know, how do you create that new nostalgia? How do you create that new that new awareness? Uh, you know, for a million dollars, we might be able to get five minutes of Taylor Swift's time to play a board game. <laughs> but... Um, and certainly that would that would help, but it's always it, it's 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 the you know what are the kids doing? What are the kids thinking about? And um, you know, having an IP, having a compelling IP uh, out there. I've seen personally, you know, if there's, I thought we we saw we saw a lot of kids getting engaged with fantasy when Lord of the Rings came out. Uh, we see a lot of kids getting a lot more kids getting in, interested in Frank Herbert with the the Dune the Dune film series. So yeah. there's they're being able to lever, leverage that and and we have to recognize the importance of media because yeah. you know my daughter yeah, didn't I mean, give a rip about Dune until she found out Timothy Chalamet was in it. Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, let's face it. You know, we're all we're all yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if everyone has kids, but you know, the truth about being a parent is that at age thirteen, your kid leaves you, and they are raised by rock stars and movie stars, and that's really, uh, you know, that's that's usually what happens. And uh, and finding a way to to leverage whatever IP. I I thought I I know some of the YouTubes. I see a lot more stuff happening right now with. Uh, well, at least my YouTube feed with uh, Masses of the Air. Uh, but I yeah. see a lot more content. And I see those actors showing up on TV shows, um, having interviews with, with talk show hosts, talking to where I'm sure there's young people watching those those interviews and following up what they're doing and thinking, you know, well, I'm I'm into I want to find out more about this because this actor's into it or that that actor's into it. Okay. I mean, and I mentioned Magic the Gathering, that the one ring card was bought by Post Malone. I mean, yeah. 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 Here's here's the uh Queen of the Skies game. You know, let's let's yeah. have a chance to play your own mission through Masters of the Air. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, unfortunately, like the people who are best positioned to do a legit historical look at something like that are the ones with the least financial ability to go get that license <laughs> and, you know, attach it to yeah. an existing game that probably yeah. comes narratively pretty close yeah. to what those guys are dealing with in the shows. Yeah. Um, and, and there's always going to be a difficult point. Like, I mean, you know, you can't really do a saving private Ryan game. <laughs> you know, I mean, I know we've all played Normandy games. We've all played you know those that genre and that era but to 
you know, to link a board game or a product or a miniature series with with that movie would be, I mean, it all bordering on crass, right? I mean, yeah. Well, and, and entering to a realm of that that hasn't stopped people from necessarily kind of trying because <laughs> if you go back and look at a lot of the original Company of Heroes launch graphics, they very much yes. look like the the screens from Saving Private Ryan, the video game. Um, you know, yes. if this one existed, they it everything but yeah. the, the the name of the movie slapped on it. Yeah. Um, videos video might be different video might be different yeah, so. yeah. but you're which, bringing up which, an interesting point i think though is that and you know and i'm we probably all have the same sort of background i think to get into wargaming i think if you have a love for history first then it's much easier to get into wargaming and the kind of things you're talking about now you know the big flashy saving private ryan those people aren't really so much interested in history as they are oh the, the, the save the private save saving private Ryan, the video game. Hey, I'm going to play that because I can run around and shoot people. And just it's not so much yeah. about the D Day landing or history, just it's an action game at this point. Yeah. yeah. So the yeah. question is, you know, how many, how many people, how many young people today are interested in history in a first? So there, I think, is your a good measuring stick for here's your base group of people you can appeal to to play war games. Um, yeah, I, I bet it's pretty small. I don't think there's, I, you know, I, I don't know how many people are, people are interested in history these days, but I bet it's a pretty small number, which is sad, but true. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's been dwindling over the years. But but Mike, you may be onto something. Maybe part of this is the approach is is in who you're who you're trying to to bring into that discussion and. Uh, and look, th- these are these are all a variety of topics that are absolutely worthy, probably of their own show, each in in, in and of themselves. You know, kind of wanted to w- with this particular episode grab the inspiration from from BGG and and widen it a little bit from the original question that the guy was asking on there. But but to to talk about all right, here's some money. Let's go do some cool stuff for wargaming. What would we do, and how would we do it? I, I think we've covered a lot of ground tonight. Yeah. Um, we we tend to do that, you know, <laughs> on this show and ramble around quite a bit. But I I do think it comes back to there are a couple of courses of action to pursue, none of which are are right. It's just a matter of kind of personal preference of what you think might work. Uh, to to you know suit what it is you think the hobby should be doing whether it's trying to engage new members of it or or you know do better by the people already in it or or you know sort of a future looking thing or maybe we're just trying to 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 find some favorite toys to go play with um i can't imagine improving the copy editing uh hurts any of those courses of action so damn it we'll get some editors because because lord knows we need those guys Folks, we're a little past an hour as we're recording. Uh, Again, upon editing, we're going to lose at least five to ten minutes of this, if only because I edit out us saying um over and over. So, uh, uh, Byron, thank you very much for for taking the time out of your vacation to join us for this this first episode that you're you're here with us for. Uh, So, so I do appreciate you, you know, knocking off from the slopes a few minutes early and holding off on the beer until uh, till we were able to get. (laughs) Oh, I, I didn't say anything about knocking off beer. I, I was yeah. going to say, I'm not so sure he did that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, and it's totally cool if you didn't. Like, you wouldn't be the first person to. I, I, know, I was working on a Canadian mule. I was working on a Canadian mule here. It's uh, ginger beer go. and uh, Canadian whiskey. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. We we've been known to have a uh, a, a slightly sloshed member or two on the on the podcast <laughs> over the years. Um, I'm sure Mike remembers a few of them, um, though probably not the ones he was on. Um, he, yeah, he but, might have been a few of them too. Who knows? Yeah. 
So, uh, Rocky, thank you for taking the time to be here. Do appreciate it. Um, you're definitely coming back later this season, and and we've got plenty of other ground to cover. And uh, and Mike, thank you for being a diligent co-host and making it a couple of weeks in a row. Yep, no problem. And uh, an audience, especially thank you to you guys. Um, we don't have a show. Well, I mean, we have a show without you guys, but it's sort of pointless. So uh, we. <laughs> We absolutely appreciate the time you spend with us, uh, hanging out here with us on uh, on mentioning dispatches. We'll catch you next time on uh, on episode five. We're all the way up to episode five next week, uh, so we're we're looking forward to you guys coming back and spending another hour or so with us, walking the dog, painting some minis, uh, cussing at us while you're listening to us on the podcast, whatever it might be. Uh, thanks for making the time to listen to us uh, here on mentioning dispatches.